The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Squawkbox. We are live here in central London at Westminster Abbey. We are live at Windsor Castle and, of course, in the London studio for the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. So world leaders have descended on London as the UK prepares to bid farewell to its longest reigning monarch in a ceremony steeped in tradition. The S&P 500 and Nasdaq post their worst week since June as investors can't down to the next Fed meeting, while ECB officials warn of further pain to come with more rate hikes on the way. Volkswagen targets a valuation of up to 75 billion euros for its partial listing of luxury sports car brand Porsche in what is set to be one of Europe's largest ever offerings. And the EU plans to withhold 7.5 billion euros in funding from Hungary amid an ongoing rule of law dispute, which the Commission claims puts Europe's budget procedures at risk. The Commission's assessment is that a risk for the budget at this stage remains. Therefore, we cannot conclude that the EU budget is sufficiently protected. The state funeral for Queen Elizabeth II is taking place in London today. The service begins at 11 o'clock and will be attended by more than 2,000 guests. Many world leaders will be in attendance, including U.S. President Joe Biden, Commonwealth Prime Ministers, European heads of state and members of royal families. Well, let's get out to Steve, who joins us from outside Westminster Abbey. Steve, this is a hugely significant d- delay, d- day, I should say, the last final send-off for the Queen, Her Majesty, and, of course, the biggest security operation we've ever seen here in London. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is, as, as you know, as a Londoner, Karen, the biggest operation we have ever seen in the United Kingdom, and that includes, of course, the London 2012 Olympics, which was an enormous security event. Uh, Police forces, security, the armed forces from all over the country have descended on London and Windsor uh, to make sure it is a safe send-off, as you say, for Her Majesty as well. And, of course, it follows uh, what has been several days of mourning around the country, first of all in St Giles's in Edinburgh, and, of course, uh, four days uh, with the Queen lying in state at Westminster Hall in the House of Parliament. And just for our international viewers who are not quite sure of the geography of London, let me just tell you that uh, uh, to my uh, right, the south here, I can see Big Ben, which is, of course, part of the Houses of Parliament. Uh, Part of that uh, magnificent structure is Westminster Hall, where the Queen has been lying in state, where hundreds of thousands of Britons uh, from the international community uh, and heads of state have already been paying their respects uh, to Her Majesty. That uh, line closes in around about uh, 25 minutes, the queue which has been quite staggering over the last few days uh, and then the doors of Westminster Hall will close and immediately the preparations will begin for the state funeral, the first state funeral we've had since 1965, uh, that of Sir Winston Churchill. Before that, of course, the last monarch to have a state funeral was the Queen's father himself in February 1952. That was George VI as well. A little word on what the timings are today here. So from around about eight o'clock our time, uh, coming into this magnificent Westminster Abbey, you can see behind me the dignitaries, the guests will start filing in. It is an enormous operation to get 2,000 people in place uh, 
before, um, of course, proceedings start as well. And, and you've mentioned a few of the people who will be here. Let me just uh, fill that out just a little bit more. Of course, you mentioned the president who has been in London since Saturday evening. He signed a book of condolence at Lancaster House uh, yesterday. He went to a reception from King Charles III, amongst others, uh, at Buckingham Palace. And of course, he too uh, filed past Her Majesty's coffin in Westminster Hall as well. Others here include uh, the, the, the great and the good of the European royalty as well, including King Philippe uh, of Belgium, King William Alexander of the Netherlands, uh, Carl Gustav uh, of Sweden, uh, and international uh, royalty as well, including Emperor Naruhito uh, of Japan. Um, huge number of premiers from around the world are here as well. Uh, we've mentioned Joe Biden, of course, President Macron will be here, uh, and leaders of the various Commonwealth countries as well, including Jacinda Ardern and Tom Albanese from New Zealand and Australia, respectively. So at 10.44, the Queen's body will be on the state gun carriage. It will be carried there in the coffin, of course, and placed on the state gun carriage. There will be a very short procession, a few hundred yards from the Houses of Parliament, from Westminster Hall uh, to the Great West door here, the Great West entrance uh, of uh, Westminster Abbey, and uh, that will then uh, be transferred uh, by the Grenadier Guards to Westminster Abbey and the service will begin at around 1100 local time, 11 BST. It's a relatively short service, uh, around about an hour will be conducted by uh, the very Reverend uh, Right Honourable David Hoyle, who is the Dean of Westminster. Uh, amongst the people speaking, of course, as you would expect, is the Archbishop of Canterbury. He will be reading the sermon, but others making readings include the Prime Minister, uh, Liz Truss, uh, and indeed Baroness Scotland, who is head of the Commonwealth nations as well. Um, the last post will be sounded towards the end of the service. There will be a two-minute silence uh, and the national anthem will be played at circa 11.55 as well. Thereafter, um, the ceremony there here in London ends uh, at Westminster Abbey, but uh, the Queen's coffin will then be transferred for what is the large processional feature of the day here in London. There will be another one later on, which I know Tanya will tell you about in Windsor, uh, but it will be then carried in the state gun carriage you've got 142 sailors uh, from the Royal Navy uh, will be pulling the state gun carriage all the way from here at uh, Westminster Abbey all the way through horse guards up the mail past Buckingham Palace up to Constitution Hill uh, where you have the Wellington Arch which have, uh, is right next to Apsley House actually which was the uh, the former residence of the Duke of Wellington he incidentally was another of a very limited number of non-royals who have had a state funeral another notable name included uh, Sir Isaac Newton as well so um, an extraordinary day's events here in London uh, and there will be two further services later on in Windsor which I know uh, that Tanya will cover a little bit later on. Steve I noticed crowds have stepped up in London in previous days and we've certainly seen people paying their respects at Green Park to the floral tribute to lay flowers for the late Queen but also going down to Buckingham Palace and of course to Westminster Hall. I know that about a, a million people are expected in central London today, so a huge amount of people and plenty also watching the funeral play out on television, which we've not seen before, a monarch and a funeral broadcast on television. It's going to be an absolutely enormous event globally as well. We know from looking at our own coverage in the United States as well how much it has captured um, the attention of the entire planet. I think we can talk about the worldwide audience in terms of hundreds of millions, if not more as well. And central London is 
is able to absorb large numbers, as you well know, Karen, but I think the numbers we're talking about here are going to be absolutely enormous, especially on the route lining the Mall, uh, and as you mentioned there, uh, in Green Park and just passing uh, Buckingham Palace all the way up to Constitution Hill, which is right at the, uh, the foot uh, of Hyde Park as well. The operation here amongst the armed forces and the police is absolutely staggering, uh, as big as any I've seen as well. But what is extraordinary, Karen, and I can tell you now, just standing here at Westminster Abbey, it is an eerie silence. There is an enormous infrastructure built for the world's media, uh, and you've probably got somewhere in the region of 100 camera points around where I am now as well. Um, but apart from that, um, I can see members of the police force just doing their final checks around the Abbey, but there is an eerie silence here uh, in Westminster at the moment. You cannot see from where I'm standing any members of the general public, of course, and we do know that the security operation has taken on many facets as well, including the fact that most of the world's most important people, dignitaries, heads of state, premiers, kings, queens, emperor, in case of uh, Mr. Naruhito as well, he, uh, the emperor of Japan as well, a lot of people will be getting buses, shuttle buses, here to Westminster Abbey to avoid some of the congestion that normally occurs when you have such a large amount of dignitaries in place. Uh, the President of the United States has been afforded the luxury of bringing uh, his own vehicle to uh, the ceremony here. That is, of course, uh, the kind of security you would expect uh, of the president. But actually, in Karen, a place you know very well, Royal Hospital Chelsea, which is a very beautiful building, um, a couple of miles to the west of where we are here along the River Thames as well. Um, that will be the staging point for a lot of the dignitaries to meet, uh, to get on their shuttle buses and to come here uh, to Westminster Abbey as well. But it is an enormous day of events ahead. As I say, the ceremony itself kicks off at 11 o'clock, but there are two later services, a committal service and a private burial of Her Majesty. They will both occur in Westminster later on. But I know Tanya has been looking into a lot of the details of those services. Steve, thank you very much. And I can tell you, Chelsea was locked down yesterday as well, gridlocked in many of the streets which tells you about the planning too as uh, world leaders have been arriving. Meanwhile, Queen Elizabeth will be laid to rest alongside her late husband, Prince Philip, as well as her father, mother and sister in Windsor later this afternoon after a private family burial service. Well, Tanya does join us with more on today's events in Windsor. Tanya, plenty of pomp and ceremony at Westminster, but Windsor will be where a lot of the private proceedings take place later on today. That's right, Karen. Good morning from Castle Hill here at Windsor Castle. You've heard from Steve there the details of the state funeral. Here at Windsor, it will be smaller ceremonies. And what will happen, of course, when the Queen's coffin arrives here at 3.06 British summer time, she will be met at the bottom of the Long Walk by a procession. The Long Walk is about 2.9 miles. She will be led up there, 102 military horses are going to be used. There'll be a procession behind the hearse. She will then arrive at 3.20 approximately at the top of the Long Walk and enter into St George's Chapel. King Charles and the rest of the members of the royal family will be arriving separately, but they will be meeting her coffin at the quadrangle to escort her into St George's Chapel, where there will be at four o'clock British summer time 
time, a committal service. There'll be about 800 people in the congregation. The Dean of Windsor will be holding the service. There will be prayers and the 800 will be made up of members of the Queen's household, also heads of the Commonwealth and realm prime ministers. The service will be about 45 minutes long, Karen, and just the before the penultimate hymn, there will be a very symbolic lifting of the crown, the orb and the scepter from Her Majesty's coffin and placed at the altar. Her coffin will then be lowered into the royal vault, where her late husband, Prince Philip, is as well. And of course, at 7.30 this evening, we've been told that there will be the private burial. It will not be televised as, as the four o'clock one will be. 7.30 burial will be private just for the family only. And that's where the Queen's coffin will join Prince Philip. It will join her father, late King George VI, her mother, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, and the ashes of her sister, the late Princess Margaret, in the St. George's VI Memorial Chapel. We will not be allowed to see the private burial. That's where the family will be able to lay their beloved mother, beloved grandmother, to rest for eternity along her late husband, father, mother and sister. Tanya, thank you very much for bringing us the developments today. And uh, we watch uh, very closely, I believe, the final moment when the, the Queen's crown is removed for that last time. And that will be a, a very significant moment. Uh, Tanya there with all the coverage from Windsor this morning. Well, coming up on the show, escalating tensions between Brussels and Budapest. The EU is proposing a first-of-its-kind move over Hungary. We'll have the details next. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. A week-old session stateside Friday, markets pulling back again. Now, we've still got these stepped-up concerns around interest rate hikes, just whether we're looking at a steeper curve now. And Treasury markets, of course, reacting last week. We moved much higher at the short end on the two-year. And this uh, rattled markets again. We traded down on the Nasdaq, nine-tenths of a percent south. Uh, the pullback, uh, big-name stocks of this time, Amazon, trading weaker. It's been Apple over the course of the week, and that was still a big catalyst for the S&P 500 push south. We were down seven-tenths of one percent and almost half of a percent stripped off the Dow. And as you take stock of the trading week, it was actually uh, all sectors uh, trading negative for the week. Materials down the most, 6.6% uh, 6 south. Healthcare stocks, the best performer. So looking at the, the sea of noise that we had effectively over the trading week, it felt like it was uh, tech stocks that were rattled, but materials also reacting to concerns around a potential recession. We see this aggressive action 
from the Fed. And keep in mind, we've got that Fed meeting this week. A ton of other central banks too expected to tighten. So much tighter monetary policy globally is what we're looking at. But clearly our concerns around the long term picture and where we end up on Fed funds rate, uh, chances are for 5 to 5.25 percent, which is uh, what uh, Goldman Sachs is now looking at as a 50-50 chance in market. So let me take you elsewhere to FedEx. Big moving stock last weekend in session Friday, 21% down is what we witnessed. This is the company warned about fiscal 2023 outlook, concerned about a downturn that could be looming for the markets and for economies. And effectively, some took the view that this was just an operational issue at FedEx. Others took it as a warning on the macro. And you can see huge pullback for the stock. Treasuries, I mentioned the short end. We stepped up about 30 basis points at the short end as markets reacted to the potential for these much larger rate hikes. Don't forget, we could be setting up for a 1% move this week. Consensus is still for 75 basis points at the Fed meeting, but that potential of a, even a larger jumbo-sized move is something the markets had to react to. 3.87 where we were perched this morning. Compare that to the 10-year at 3.45. Still that fairly significant inversion on markets. And let me take you elsewhere as we talk about central banks. Bundesbank President Joachim Nagel says the ECB will need to keep raising interest rates to bring inflation under control. Speaking in Frankfurt, Nagel, who was a member of the central bank's governing council, said he did not expect to see a hard recession in the euro area, but warned more needed to be done to return to a neutral rate. Now, the ECB is expected to raise interest rates again at its October meeting after an historic 75 basis point hike earlier this month. Meanwhile, ECB chief economist Philip Lane seemingly echoed Nagel's comments saying the central bank could keep raising interest rates into next year. He added that, quote, we're not going to pretend this will be a pain, pain free. Now, Lane also added that demand was now a source of inflationary pressures, but said the eurozone economy would flatline over the winter. And I mentioned just how busy it is for central banks over the course of the week. Now, Sweden's Riksbank kicks off the round of policy decisions on Tuesday. Speculation is running high that the Federal Reserve could go even more jumbo with its rate hike on Wednesday than Thursday marks meetings for the Bank of England, Bank of Japan and Swiss National Bank. The European Commission has proposed suspending funding rules for Hungary over concerns of corruption, a first of its kind for the bloc. The move would slash 65% of EU funding to the country. Let's get out to Sylvia for more. Sylvia, just bring us up to speed with these measures from the EU. So all in all, this was an unprecedented move, Karen, from the European Commission, announcing that indeed it is proposing the suspension of European funds to Hungary. And we're talking about 7.5 billion euros here. And the reason behind this, the reason why the Commission is asking for this suspension is because it is concerned about the way that Hungary is using European funds. And let me just give you a quick example here. In essence, the European Commission has said that 50% of the public procurement contracts in Hungary only saw one bidder. So this is why the European Commission is taking this step. It is not the first episode within this saga. Back in April, the Commission had already raised concerns about the way that Hungary is using European funds. During the summer, Hungary addressed these concerns. It said that it had prepared 17 measures to address this issue. But what the Commission is saying now is that, listen, this is not detailed enough. 
Let's take a look at what else the Commissioner for Budget, Johannes Hian, had to say about the reasoning behind this move from the Commission. Important details of the proposed measures are still to be determined and assessed, in particular how their key elements will be reflected in the actual legal texts. This is natural as the timelines and deadlines under this regulation are, rightly so, very tight. Additionally, several of the issues the Commission has identified require not only changes in the legal framework, but concrete changes in practice, which requires more time to deliver concrete results. Therefore, the Commission's assessment is that a risk for the budget at this stage remains. Therefore, we cannot conclude that the EU budget is sufficiently protected. So this is a proposal from the European Commission. This means that now it's up to the member states to vote on it and to decide whether they approve this suspension of funds. But it's important to note that they only need qualified majority to go ahead with this suspension. So the chances that this will go ahead are actually higher than if it was indeed, uh, if they needed a unanimous decision to go ahead with it. I just want to also mention that Hungary has until mid-November to take action. The government there He's saying that it is looking at this issue. So let's see whether or not there will be some action from the Hungarians, Karen. But the, all in all, this just seems to be the latest episode in what is a very complicated relationship between European institutions and Hungary. Sylvia, just stunning comments. What, about 50% of public procurement contracts awarded in Hungary have only one bidder according to the Commission. I mean, that is just startling. But is it a wake-up call about potential integrity problems across Europe? This is clearly magnified in Hungary, but what about beyond Hungary? Well, for the time being, it does seem to be that the issue is with Hungary, the way that it is using these funds. And there's actually a school of thought out there suggesting that perhaps this is happening right now. So then the European Commission has leeway in the coming months to also approve the COVID-related funds that have not yet been approved for Hungary. So there's a school of thought there that perhaps the move that we're seeing right now is actually to help both the Commission and Hungary. So from a a perspective from an outsider perspective really it remains to be seen how much action and detailed action we will see from Hungary to address these issues but we know that this is not you know a, a new concern when it comes to Hungary there are other concerns as well for instance when it comes to the fact that Hungary has signed new deals with Gazprom at a time when you know the European Union is making a huge effort to stop the dependence that they have from Russian fossil fuels so this is not the only issue that really divides European institutions and Hungary, but the linking point so far in terms of their relationship, in terms of keeping Hungary un still within the EU, it is all about the money. It's about the European funds. So let's see how this issue will be solved to then understand indeed how united the EU actually is in other matters not just about European sanctions on Russia, but indeed on this move to end the dependency on Russian fossil fuels. So there's a lot at play here, Karen. Sylvia, if we think about a lot of money that was dispensed on the back of a crisis, it did tell us a story of solidarity in Europe. In recent weeks, we've been talking about it through the lens of Italy. We know we're counting down to an Italian election, that if there is any wriggle room around how the money is spent, it sends a really negative picture 
next time round if there's a crisis, what sort of solidarity would there be? But this issue that comes up with Hungary also comes into the mix. If we're talking about corruption, money that is not well spent, that doesn't get the desired outcome and reforms and repairing economies, then doesn't that put future rescue missions in crisis as well? I mean, for the time being, it's all about the COVID funds, right? This was a big step for the European Union. They said that they were going to raise money together for the first time. And that process so far has been implemented quite quickly and quite well. But it remains to be seen, indeed, how the how this money is actually going to be used. We're talking about Italy within this context as well. A huge question mark about what the next government is going to do about these European funds. But it's about implementation and so far it's very early to tell indeed how this money is going to be used if it's going to be effectively done because we know that the member states have a lot of benchmarks to achieve in order to get more disbursements so far that has been the case Hungary though still doesn't have those COVID-related funds. So let's see how that money is going to be implemented there. But perhaps what we're seeing now between the Commission and Hungary in terms of their cohesion funds, we could also see in terms of the COVID-related funds. So in terms of how the European Union is using this money, and you're raising very good points there, Karen, when it comes to the COVID funds, it's just really early to tell how well this is going to be used. But in the Europeans' history, this is not the first time that we're hearing concerns about European money being used. We saw that, for instance, as well with the Czech Republic. So it really remains to be seen. Sylvia, I very much appreciate the coverage. Thank you for breaking that all down for us. Uh, let's push on and talk about a big corporate story today as Volkswagen is targeting a valuation of 70 to 75 billion euros when it floats part of luxury car maker Porsche later this month. Shares have been priced between 76 euros and uh, 50 and 82 euros 50. The listing is set to become the second largest in German history. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.